This is Manifest Mindset, where we delve into our true passions, inspire the best out of ourselves, and live our life with true intention every single day. All right, welcome back to another episode of Manifest Mindset. How are you doing, Nick? Bob, I'm hanging in there, my friend, doing pretty, pretty darn well. What's new with you? Nothing much, nothing much. Um, we're finally reaching the end of, well, I would say, like, pretty much things are opening up again um, in terms of, like, the government and the economy, I guess, uh, in this cor- the coronavirus time. Um, have you been noticing a difference? I know you're, like, actually in the workforce, like, as a physical therapist, and now some of the guidelines have been, like, lifted just a little bit. Have you been noticing any changes? Yeah, I have, Bob, man. I think, you know, it depends on uh, how big the organization is. I think the larger organizations um, are being a little bit more gradual with their progression, um, you know, just to make sure that things are done the right way. Some of the smaller places um, are eager to open up and get going again. Um, for myself personally, things haven't changed a ton over the last couple of weeks, um, just in terms of, you know, everything surging up again. I will say in L.A., the traffic is starting to get heavier again. Um, which is a blessing and a curse. It's a good sign because we know that people are out doing stuff they love, which is good. I'm glad people are getting back to work, especially when we look at physical therapy stuff. It's like, you know, for people, big risks of depression and chronicity for issues, a lot of that is dependent and influenced on your return to work um, and just your willingness and desire to get back there. So I'm glad that people are resuming a somewhat normal life, but not pumped for traffic doubling out here. Yeah, nobody likes traffic. But I think on that point, I just want to mention, like, and say how how grateful I am that, like, humans in general are are strong. I don't know if that's, like, a very cliche and generic statement, but it's, like, we survived so many past pandemics or past disease outbreaks, survived wars. And then this is just another thing that, at the end of the day, like, humans made it through. Like, we made it. And thankfully, I'm thankful that none of the people that, are near me, like in a close vicinity, had the coronavirus or suffered from the coronavirus. So I'm very thankful for that. But in general, we made it through. Hopefully, unless there's another second wave or something. But but right now, look, it's, it's looking hopeful. It is looking hopeful, Bob. And you know, for some reason or another, around every month or so, I have this random thought: like, damn, how the heck did cavemen survive so long in these like freaking tundras and these crazy environments? for us to get here and we do have a will i'm not saying life was ideal back then um but we had a freaking willpower still last with us along the way yeah um so one of on that point one of my accountability tasks for last week was to to read half of my book um yeah. which i did so, so this was the mckenzie textbook for the extremities and yeah. in that in that book they talk uh mckenzie wrote about um, drawings from Sir Ashley Cooper. He was basically like a surgeon in like the 1700s, and he he basically dissected people and drew the the anatomy drawings. And what he drew were basically like abnormal uh, anatomy pieces. So basically, in the past, um, if people like fell down a roof and they were a carpenter or like they were fixing a roof, um, they they would still have to work no matter what. They couldn't just decide that they were gonna go off and not work because if they didn't work they would not have any money to to fund their families they would starve so even if they had like a dislocated hip 
optionality. It was just you do it or you don't. Yes. So yeah, even if they did, if they had like a dislocated hip, they still have to keep on working. Um, so what they found was when they looked at these people and they dissected them, they they opened up their hips and basically their bones pretty much fused together. Like this principle of, of Wolf's Law, so anything that's stressed will grow. So basically the body itself developed new bones, new ligaments, new cartilage, so the person can function even when they had a dislocated hip. So it goes to show like how strong the body can adapt, both physically and mentally, to like, like what you mentioned with the, the cavemen, how in the world did cavemen survive? They just adapted. They just dealt with the stresses that and went through. And I think that's, I think through all this, that's, that's a big takeaway for me of, oh, we're, we're strong in general. Like what other people have achieved, they're also human. And then as long as we're human, and I, hopefully we, we all are, um, we can achieve the same thing. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, Bob, we all, I think in this modern time, and myself included, right, I'm I'm kind of soft. I'm not this, like, crazy hard-ass or anything and, like, this big tough guy. Um, sometimes I like to think I am, but I'm really not that much. And we, I think we value comfort a little bit too much. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, oh, yeah, dude, you got to get out there. you got to work hard with a dislocated hip and get a fused hip. I am not recommending that. And I'm not pretending, Bob, like these adaptations are ideal. But I think that, you know, when we look at even other third world countries, they have some element of pain as a part of their daily existence and experience. And because of that, they don't have this catastrophization of pain that we have. Um, but for them, it's, okay, I have this sensation. I've got to do the best I can with it and still do what I have to do. And I think I'm not saying that we should go to that extreme inherently and put up with and deal with our pain. But I think that as we take constructive steps to deal with pain, whether that's the physical pain or emotional or whatever it is in our life, saying, hey, let's keep our eyes on the prize, focus on the big things while we do construct it instead of, oh, my gosh, I have a brand-new stimulus I'm encountering in my environment. Let me run away. No, go back to that a few times and see if your body can get acclimated to it as the strong, resilient beings that we are. Yeah. Um, I guess to, to play off of that, um, like in especially the first world countries like ours, we have we have what like disability and sick leave and things like that, which we don't. It, I guess in third world countries, they don't really have the privilege of that of of having paid sick sick days or or disability in general, long term, short term disability. Um, and I guess and this is just my experience, but when somebody hurts, even if it's just like a twinge, they'll just be worried about it and potentially seek care um but like you said they'll just in like third world countries they'll just have to deal with it um and and again that's not that's not like the ideal version of it um but i feel like this idea again of like catastrophizing is a lot more easier in first world countries than third world countries right because we we have the option to um and so i think you know without making ourselves miserable i think we can learn a a lot from people who are, um, unfortunately, have a little bit more of a disadvantage, but oftentimes their tribes, their communities, their clans are tighter and more interconnected. Why? They have to be, because they have to rely on each other. And so, Father, they have to rely on each other for their survival. You know, my question is for myself, for you, for all of America, or any of the countries that we're hitting with this podcast, many of the people we're hitting, 
why can't we use that same interconnectedness, the same clan mentality to, instead of just trying to survive, to really thrive and not be stuck in just a survival mode? Hmm, I like that. So, so how do you, so, so what do you say, like, basically interacting with, with the community members of the community you want to be a part of? Yeah, um, and, you know, the way I kind of see it is that we, our generation and people right now, and I'm, again, speaking as a very broad statement here, so, of course, I'm going to offend some people, and anytime anybody goes really broad, you're going to offend some people, and some people are going to say you're wrong. Um, so, I truly believe things are more intricate than this, but we're good at socially uh, communicating here and there. We're good at kind of, you know, let's get a little bit beyond superficial, but not really deep and not really get to know people that well. Um, and I think that, you know, these communities that you're involved in, where you can be your true, genuine, authentic self and have a purpose and a mission and have other people that not only welcome that, but demand that out of you. If we can be involved in one, two, three, five of those type of communities, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine ourselves not being successful at what we seek out trying to do. Okay, I like that. How do you find what kind of communities you want to be a part of? My that's answer, a broad question. That's an extremely broad question. My answer is you got to find yourself first, Bob, because if you don't, if you, I think we all have a tendency to some degree in some times in our life to have the, there's this balance between being who we really are and trying to fit in. Um, and I think anytime we try and kind of quote unquote fit in, all we're doing is we're conforming ourselves to whatever the norm is. And honestly, the norm is totally overrated. Um, and so if we're trying to conform ourselves the whole time. We're never being vulnerable enough to let other people in, even more importantly, let ourselves know who we are as people. Um, so I think it really starts with just being your authentic self and, um, you know, being this might get a bad rep for some people um, who are more people pleasers, but. Being unapologetic about it, being you, owning you, and making life happen. Okay. I like that. That's that's a good general statement about the general topic of, of finding, I guess, your community. <laughs> um, but but let's shift gears, Nick. I, I'm more curious about, I guess, how it's been a week since we last talked about um, like your residency. So I think one of the, the the accountability tasks that you wanted to set for yourself was just reviewing your residency notes pretty much daily for like 15 minutes. Um, how's that been going? It's been doing good, Bob. I mean, I hit the mark on the target. There are some days where it's really, hey, it's been a crazy day. It's just like 15, 20 minutes. There are some days where I do go over and it's like, okay, sweet. That's a good feeling. That's a check mark. Um, and again, it's not always explicitly like write notes from residency, but it's other textbooks too, other things that are, I'm making my residency experience better and like other side references that are about the same topic. Um, yeah, absolutely hitting the mark with that and it's been good, my friend. I uh, had my mentoring session yesterday and that was really good. Um, I always say I kind of get my ass kicked a little bit in mentoring in a, in a great way, in a refreshing way. Um, but you know, it's, you got to invite a little bit of humility in there to really grow. Yeah. So you mentioned like you're, you're better, you're bettering the experience. Um, and again, with any experience, it's what you make out of it. So how, how do you feel like you're bettering the residency experience with your actions? Okay. Let me, uh, I'm going to ask a clarifying question about that, Bob, just to, just to make sure I understand exactly what you're talking about. Are you saying like how, 
what actions am I taking to make my residence, residency experience better? Or yes. are you asking, what am I doing um, to make, you know, the culture around me, you know, what, what do I bring to make the culture around me in that physical therapy setting better? I like both questions. Okay. We'll start with number one, so you said yes first. So what am I doing? What action steps am I taking to make this residency experience better for me, for what I want to get out of it? Um, I think number one is not limiting myself to um, just the residency experience. Still exploring other areas, contrasting things. Um, I think for me, actually, having this other sports-based job where I take a lot of things I've learned from that, apply to the residency, a lot of things I learned at the residency, and apply it back and forth, where I'm kind of out of the direct pressure from either of them, because in some ways it's kind of a lack of accountability, right? And, hey, I'm not... Held, I'm held to different standards at each place, and so it would be easy just to conform each of the standards. So it's never about the standards that other people hold on me. Well, that's an encouragement and good accountability about the standards that I hold on myself. Yeah. So I know that, hey, I'm bridging the gap every day by different aspects. I think another part of it for me is just saying, hey, you know, at my, at my direct facility, it's not only, you know, me and my mentor there, right? I mean, some residencies are set up like that. It's just your mentor and you, and you're learning. For me, it's a four other residents here with me as well. And, you know, we make, in my mind, uh, a decently good team. We have our great moments. We have our eh, mediocre moments. But, you know, we do a lot of extra hands-on practice, a lot of kind of clinical reasoning, a lot of time locations with each other. It's in that little downtime, the informal time, the time we make with each other. You know, similar to how, uh, well, we had a mutual professor back in the day, John Winslow, who he said he used to, you know, hang out, have his own suit with radiology to see the better reading images. It's that kind of practice and deliberate intention with the people who are far better than you or similar to you that you want to keep learning from and reflecting with. So that's something that I'm trying to do um, with the residents. Like I said, it's not just the residents. Um, we've got two sports fellows, two fine fellows, two pain fellows there. Um, We've also got all the mentors for all of us, too. And so it's far more than just me and my mentor. It's how can I kind of pick a brain, collaborate with, and get working with everybody else in that facility to make myself as good as I can. Okay. I like that. So take so connecting with the people in the residency, learning from them, not being the smartest person in the room, and just soaking in as much information as you can while building those genuine connections. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I use the word and the phrase kind of soaking in information a lot. I just want to be clear that, you know, it's not just sitting there like a sponge. It's not a passive act. It's not just by hanging out with people or even by, you know, asking a question that you get knowledge all of a sudden be bestowed onto you. It's about a lot of in-depth clinical reasoning. It's about thinking through the process, a heck of a lot of reflection. And so it's an extremely active process in that. But yes, Bob. Okay. And, and you mentioned that compared to working at, if you were in a residency, there's much more accountability built in for yourself and externally when you're in a residency. Is that correct? Just wanted no, to reiterate. So. Because, you know, there's a, there's a curriculum at hand. Whereas with other jobs, it's about, hey, what do you need to do to, let's say, um, work best for this patient? So if you're getting results with the patient, then to a certain extent, hey, that's, uh, that's the best you can be, right? And you're really making that happen. And some situations you'll be blessed to have coworkers that hold you to a higher standard and to challenge you, but um, when there's something about when you walk into an experience 
with a learning opportunity, whether it's direct didactic work, direct hands-on, kind of a reasoning work mentorship that's built into the program, and not only for a couple individuals or a new employee kind of onboarding, but from the standpoint of, okay, damn, every single person in this facility is bought into this culture. You know, every single person at the facility I'm at has been through a minimum of residency, and, you know, a lot of them have been through two or three fellowships, and one guy's been through four. Um, wow. And so it's it's just this incredible culture and learning environment that where it's some places you've got to really force your way to get into something that's even under that level. Whereas here it's like, hey, we have a minimum expectation, and that minimum expectation is pretty damn high. I like it. And then going to question number two. So you, you mentioned, so you, you already talked a little bit about culture, but I think the the second question that you interpreted for my question was um, this aspect of how do you influence the culture around you in terms of emergency? My sarcastic ass jokes. No, I'm only half kidding. Um, it's actually kind of not kidding. But honestly, Bob, it's just about getting to, getting to know the people so well. Um, you know, we've all got no matter how talented how you are, how good you are, um, we've all got a ton of strengths. We've all got a ton of weaknesses. And for me, it's about what are the little tiny actions I can do day to day to bring out the best those around me. I mean, I consider it like a sports team. If I know somebody wants to hit a shallow left-sided, you know, bank shot, if that's their shot, that's their go-to, how can I set them up on the court, a.k.a. On the, in the clinic, to hit their stride more and set them up for success? Um, so for me, it's really just about getting to know everybody on the team really well, getting to know them personally. For some of them, it's about, hey, let's hang out outside the clinic, let's play some sports, let's mess around, um, just have a hell of a good time with it. And so, honestly, it's about contributing to the culture, investing in people's best for reasons that are not just clinical, for things that are not just, you know, for any kind of selfish motive, but it's a little stuff that we all should be doing every single day anyway. And I think that when we stop and we think about it, it's kind of obvious, but it's not obvious in the sense that I don't think we do it enough. Or when we get in these higher pressure environments like residency, we can neglect it and forget about it. I'm going to put you on the hot seat just a little bit, Nick. Please do, man. Please do. If you could, like, put a sentence about what, like, your culture is in the one sentence about Kaiser and evolution, what, what would you say it is? Ooh. Ooh. I'm going to have to take a pause, Bob. I'm, give, me, give me a moment to think about this. So, it's a sentence. That's a powerful statement. All right, let me think about this, my man. And it, it could be like the mission statement. It could be anything that you feel personally. Oh, no. Um, this is going to be personal, Bob. I can't just put out the mission statement, man. i got to make this legit. Come on, man. But, but it's interesting to see if what your definition of their culture or like one sentence culture aligns yeah. with the Kaiser's culture um, or their mission statement, because I'm, I'm interested to see what you come up with, Nick. I'm interested too, Bob. Okay, uh, evolution. What I'm going to say, the culture is is empowering obstacle breakers. Empowering obstacle breakers. Empowering obstacle breakers. Doesn't quite flow amazing, but 
AIDS, that take-home message of, hey, we're here for our patients, we're here for each other. We're all about empowering that environment, the team environment, the sports environment. And saying, listen, whatever the obstacle is in your rehab, it does not define you. It does not define your goals and mission. And we're going to find a way to break through that first over it, burn that sucker down, and make you even stronger than you were coming in. And before whatever injury or anguish you had. Do you feel like that's specific to evolution? I feel like that's specific for, I feel like when I look at evolution, specifically my practice within evolution there, I'm not saying that other clinics don't have that by any means, but I'm saying that's the thing that I think holds true the most for them. I like it. Let's hear it for Kaiser. All right, Kaiser. Kaiser is going to be deep in the process, deep in the commitment. Deep in the process, deep in the commitment. And the reason I say that is because it is. It's about bringing you up in a process, bringing you up in a, a form of clinical reasoning to truly be invested far beyond just being good results. So what are all the little nuances we can do to make yourself better and better every single day? Is, and then so- keep it keeping the commitment for both personal, for what you want to get out of the experience, what you want to get back to the profession, but then most importantly for the patients too. So just to clarify, Nick, what specifically is the process? The process, Bob, is about seeing who you are in the mirror as a clinician, seeing for the honesty as unbiased as you can, your strengths, the habits you do well, your flaws, where your inconsistencies are, and not just where your inconsistencies are, but how inconsistent are you? Are you hitting the right thing, you know, 80% of the time, 30% of the time? And that process is, hey, let me just hit my mark a little bit better day after day. Admit that I know a heck of a lot, but I know even less than that. I know I know a lot, but there's far more that I have to learn. I'm making that a priority to go after it. Okay, I like that. Thank you for being in the hot seat, Nick. That was that was Absolutely. great. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, putting me there. Thank you for uh, well, let's be real. We've talked to each other back there a few times, back and forth over the days. Yes. So I think we we can keep it a little bit of shorter episode for this uh, this week. And this, again, I, I have a I have an unrelated off-topic question for you, Bob. Yes. So we've been doing these podcasts over. Just been over the phone for a while now. So tell me about the process you use to kind of record this over the phone to get you going to upload to the contest yeah. later on, and especially for me and Bob listening about this. Yeah, of course. So originally when we were doing this, we were running into so many issues. Uh, the, <laughs> the call breaking like every three seconds, and then I had to like put all the audio clips together. So, so there's an app um, on that source. For, I think it's on iTunes. I don't know if it's for any other store, um, but it's called Tape a Call, Tape a, Record a Call, or Tape a Call uh, okay. Pro. Um, it does cost like ten dollars. So I just decided to make the commitment. So you just pay once, and then you have it for life. Uh, basically, you call this number, and then you merge the phone call with whoever you're calling, and then they give you the audio file. 
and then that that's pretty much how that works. Nice, man. So it's like government. It's not only like you have to question if the government's reporting your call. You know the government's reporting your call. Exactly. <laughs> but but it works great with with things like these, like podcasts over the phone. If anybody wants to do that, um, so I, I think it's a great resource. Sweet man. No, I just wanted to get your vibe for that, and uh, you know, for anybody else out there who's considering doing a podcast in the future, or even you know, and you're on a sweet business call. And you want an opportunity to replay your thoughts, hear things over, reflect on things. Um, I think it's a great way of doing things. Hey, this whole podcast was started because we were just having a great conversation, and then we asked each other if we wanted to start a podcast on it, and then it's been going ever since. Exactly. And, you know, I think that that's the best way of doing it is having a genuine idea, a genuine mission together for it. And then out of that mission comes the further accountability. So speaking of accountability, um, for my next week, I would just want to finish the rest of my book and start the fir- and finish the first 100 pages of the next textbook. So lots of so in total 200 pages of reading. Yes, Bob. Sounds like a good plan. Do you want to set anything for yourself, Nick? You know, Bob, with everything I got going on, um, it's just you know, I, it's funny. I'm talking to my other friends about. I was talking to my other friends about, uh, you know, everything going on, and it's uh, it's funny. You know, they're going after some great stuff, ambitious, audacious. And in comparison, it sounds like, hey, I'm not doing as much, but it's like, you know, I'm in my residency on my other job, whatever. Um, but honestly, there's a hell of a lot going on. So I'm going to stick with my 15 minutes um, and stay committed to that. I love it. And, again, it's all about accountability on this podcast. Just even if it's big things, even if it's big things or little things, it's still accountability, and that's, what this podcast is about. Absolutely. Perfect. All right, Nick. I'll see you next week. See you next week, my friend. Thank you.